Well, I come here today to bring you a tiny sliver of good news. Um, maybe you saw this, uh, this story in the paper a couple of weeks ago. It said that a 4.0 aftershock jolts the Anchorage area. Well, I have good news for you, which is there will be no more aftershocks. So you, you all remember the, um, the earthquake last year, obviously. So, um, so the good news is that we aren't going to have any more aftershocks, that that one in, Dece- in uh, uh, late November was the last aftershock we need to worry about. And the reason for that is because of the definition of aftershock. So I, I saw this back in January. They were explaining, they were explaining what is an aftershock. An aftershock is based on some complicated uh, formula that geologists use based on the, um, the strength of the seismic signal and so forth. And what it boils down to is they said after 300 days, there wouldn't be any more aftershocks. So, so from now on, they're just plain old earthquakes. So, <laughs> so that is the sliver of good news is that there won't be any more aftershocks. But unfortunately, as you know, there will be more earthquakes because, because Alaska is located um, at the boundary of two geological fault, uh, um, uh, plates. And as they bump up against each other, they cause earthquakes and volcanoes and so forth. So, so geologists call that the ring of fire because there's all these volcanoes and, and earthquakes that happen along the, the uh, edges of the Pacific Ocean. And the, the question about earthquakes is, is when will they happen next? And we don't know. The, 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 the one thing we can say is that they're going to keep happening, right? Those, you know, there's nothing we can do to stop the Pacific Ocean from sliding around. It's just going to keep doing that. So we have to say, for all we know, it's going to happen tomorrow. Now, you know, it might be, there, there's a, there's a big uh, plate alongside of Seattle called the, the Juan de Fuco plate. They say it's way overdue for an earthquake. It's been 50 years since the last time it had an earthquake, and they, they know it's supposed to have one, but it hasn't. And so uh, they could say, you know what, it's been 50 years, it could be equally well another 50 years. So, so why don't we just relax all of our building codes and let people throw up whatever kind of uh, shacks they want? Because, you know, it's been 50 years, what are the odds it could happen again, right? And so, so they could say, well, we don't have to worry about it because it hasn't happened lately. Or they could say, look, we know from geology it's going to happen eventually, so we have to assume it's going to happen later today, okay? Because, or, or at least as soon as your building goes up. Because, because we have to design for what we know might happen, even though we don't know when it's going to happen. And so, so there is in the area of earthquakes the big question of when. And I'm going to use this as a metaphor to talk about um, the coming of Jesus. This is the topic we, we raise at the time of Advent. We talk about when is Jesus returning. Now, last week, if you were here, if you weren't here, you can listen online. But last week we saw that Paul's answer was kind of like the geologist's answer. It was, it was I don't know, but... We have to assume later today. He said, it's sooner, it's sooner than you think. In fact, this is what he said. He said, you know how late it is. Time is running out. So, you know, earthquake could happen later today. Wake up for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of our salvation will soon be here. Now, the good news is Paul's not talking about something like an earthquake. He's not talking about destruction and chaos and, you know, looting and whatever else bad things happen with, with earthquakes. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about, um, the salvation will be here sooner than we expected. So it's not a good analogy in that sense, but it is still the question when. And Paul says, I don't know, but we have to act as if it could be later today. So, so in that sense, uh, Paul is saying, I don't know. I don't know. 
But Paul has a more complete answer, and really the book of Romans is the, the long answer for Paul. And so this week and next, we're going to look at that answer, and we're going to kind of sketch through the, the theology that Paul has of that question. When is Jesus returning, and, and how is it significant? And the more complete answer that Paul would give us is that um, that Christ is the answer to God's promises. Because the question when, we ask that for a reason. We ask it because we're concerned about things in our own life or things in the world. We may look at the world and say the world is a mess. There's wars and there's violence. There's there's trouble around the world. There's There's hunger and poverty. There's racism. There's all these bad things. And we're wondering, when is God going to do something about that? Or maybe we're just saying, you know what? I can't even think about that. I'm worried about this particular thing in my own life. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about my bank account. I'm worried about uh, this relationship that's that's headed south. Uh, that we we say, if God is a good God, and if God can do all the things that He says He can, then when is He going to get to work? Because I can't make this problem go away on my own. I need some help. And the question I've got is, when is God going to jump in here? Is is He is He even aware of what's going on? And um, and how is he going to answer the promise? I mean, maybe you have a specific biblical promise in mind, or maybe you're just saying that that he promised to be a good God. And so either either kind of promise, is God going to keep his promise? And if he's going to, when? And Paul's answer to us in the book of Romans is, Christ is the answer to God's promises. So I want to go through that, but I'm going to have to provide some background. So when Paul is writing, he's writing to a, a audience that if they would have known anything at all about the, the Hebrew scriptures, they would have had some basic um, understanding that, that he could rely on. So I'm going to sketch that out very quickly. These ideas that are in the background as Paul begins his letter. Um, uh, the, the, the idea is, first of all, yes, the world is a mess. Why is the world a mess? Is it because God made it a mess? Is it just that this is the way it's always been and it always will be? Uh, Jews would have said, no, the world was not always a mess, that it was made good that God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So that would have been just kind of, that's our position, that's what we believe, and we're starting there. But something went wrong, and the person on whose watch it was to keep things from going wrong um, was actually the one who made things go wrong. And it doesn't matter whether you think of the Garden of Eden as a, as a symbolic telling, you know, ancient poetry, or if you think there's an actual literal Adam who ate an actual literal fruit, either way... His fingerprints are all over whatever went wrong. The the fall or the first sin or, again, whatever you want to call it, that humans are implicated in what went wrong with humanity. And that just makes sense. Most of the problems that we're aware of, there are human fingerprints somewhere in the vicinity. And we say, okay, that makes sense to me. So, So the problem is humans have made a mess of God's good creation. What What can be done? Well, God says, you can't, you can't fix it. He says, but I can. God says, don't worry. I'm going to fix it. And the way I'm going to fix it is I'm going to call a people to myself, the people of Israel. And so God says to, so, so the first, the first point, God's answer to human sin is covenant with Israel. God does not say, I'm going to wad it up in a ball, throw it into the cosmic wastebasket and start over. God says, I'm going to fix this. And the way I'm going to fix this is through a covenant with Israel. So God calls Abraham and he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. 
and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And through you, through you, Abraham, and through the nation that will become, uh, that will come from your, your family, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. So that is, that is the covenant that God makes. But there's a, there's a hitch in this covenant. I mean, it sounds good, right? We don't have to do anything. Let the Jews take care of it. That, you know, Gentiles, it's like, you know, not my problem. It's the Jews' problem. The problem is the Jews are people just like us, and they are subject to the same failings that we have. So if we're trusting them to solve the problem, we're out of luck. Paul says, um, uh, uh, centuries later, Paul reflects on the history of Israel, and he says, should we conclude that Jews are better than others? No, not at all. So Paul's writing as a Jew, and he says, no, we've already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. So so God's plan seems to be um, uh, hung up on this problem, which is God made a nation um, to to be the instrument of salvation, but it didn't do the job, or it's incapable of doing the job, more, more, more to the point. So God has an answer to that. He says, wait, calm down. Calm down. I'm not done yet. So God's answer to Israel's sin is the promise of Messiah. God says, I know what I'm doing. Don't panic. So he tells, he begins the, this, um, this, uh, uh, the, the, the idea of Messiah is revealed over time as God speaks first to, to, uh, David through the prophet Nathan. God tells him, um, when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. God says, I will provide a, uh, an heir to you, David, who will, who will make your kingdom strong. And he says, he is the one who will build his house, uh, my, a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. God says, your line will last forever, David, unlike your predecessor who was a one generation dynasty. So, he says, I'm going to make you a, a permanent dynasty. And in the book of Psalms, we see, um, as, this, as this idea develops, God um, is addressed by the psalmist who says, You, you God, you said, I have raised up a warrior. I have selected him from the common people to be king. And he will call out to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will make him my firstborn son, the mightiest king on earth. I will love him and be kind to him forever. My covenant with him will never end. I will preserve an heir for him. His throne will be as endless as the days of heaven. So this idea is that is that he will be this this uh, king who is able to solve the problems that um, that Israel has been facing. And um, then in Isaiah, uh, the prophet is told. Um, uh, that that uh, that it's a bigger solution than that. So the prophet, um, he God said to me, this Messiah. So Isaiah, with his prophetic vision, is hearing a conversation between God and the coming Messiah. He God said to the Messiah, "You are my servant Israel, and you will bring me glory." And the Messiah replies, "But my work seems so useless. I've spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose." And he says. You will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So this idea of the Messiah grows and develops as people begin to see what God is is promising, that the Messiah will not only solve the problem of Israel's sin, 
but by doing so, solve the problem of human sinfulness. So it's, so it's, um, it's, uh, God's solution to both problems in one person, the Messiah. And that's all background. That's where we can now pick up the, the book of Romans as Paul begins it for us in chapter one. So, um, Paul says this. He says, God promised this good news long ago through the prophets in his holy scriptures. That's what we've been going over, is that God has been promising this good news for a long time. So it's been, it's been a long time coming and it's, uh, slowly developing. And, and so we, we now have a lot of things that we're waiting for God to do. We, we've got these promises, but the question is when? And so now in verse one, this letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and to send out, send out to preach his good news. What good news is that, Paul? This good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. And, you know, that's like, ding. Are you talking about the Messiah, you know, Paul? Because, because I know that that's one of the credentials to become the Messiah. You must be a descendant of King David. The problem is that's a thousand years ago. That's like being a descendant of Charlemagne, you know. For all I know, you are one. You know, I mean, you know, one, you know, one one hundred and twenty eighth of Charlemagne or whatever, however many generations there's been. There's a lot of descendants of King David uh, wandering around the Holy Land at this point. So, so that could be anybody. So he says, he says he met the basic criteria, and yes, he was a he was a um, descendant of King David. But he goes on. He says he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we know that it's that particular offspring of David? Well, the answer is because God has marked him out. God uses a word that's used in, in serving. He, God, is, God has established a boundary. God's kind of drawn a circle around him to show him that, to show us all that he is the one that has been um, uh, foretold. And there's something that, that um, Paul, Paul points out that, that we don't we don't uh, see because we're reading the the scriptures in translation, but in the the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures, the word that we saw earlier, I will raise up one of your descendants, and I have raised up a warrior. That is the same word for resurrection. So Paul is saying, this is this is not an accident that that the people who translated these scriptures three hundred years ago used the same word for resurrection to talk about raising up a king, and Paul says this is God's handiwork. In, in the, the translation of the scriptures 300 years before the time of Christ. So he says, he says that, uh, God has marked him out in that way as well. And who is he? Well, he is the Messiah. He is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He is our Lord. And so he says, he says, he has done, God has done what the law could not do. He sent his own, the law, the, the covenant with Israel. He has done what the covenant with Israel could not do by itself. He sent his own son into a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared um, an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So he says, God has, the, the good news is not that God has made some promises that will come due someday. The good news is that God has done this. This has already happened. As Paul writes the letter to the people in Rome, it's been 28, 29 years and he's saying, this is done. This is actually, it's no longer a win question, a, a someday soon, you know, the look to the east, the, you know, the dawn. He's saying, no, this has already happened. So the, the more complete answer is that God has already done this. And yet, as Paul knows, in the same chapter of Romans where he talks about what God has already done, he says, 
All creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. He's saying, he's saying God's already done this. And yet we look around and we see that what God is doing is not yet complete. And so what Paul says is that is because the Messiah has initiated the age to come. The Messiah initiates the age to come. And to understand why that's a, that's a, that's a huge development for Paul as he, as he communicates this to his audience, they would have said, okay, that's not the way I always thought it was going to work. So to, to understand this, I've got a diagram. You know, this is a very conventional thing. People are familiar with the idea of time is an arrow, right? You know, the, the arrowhead is in the direction of the future and the, the tail fins are in the direction of the past and we're somewhere in the middle of the, the arrow, right? So that's a, that's a basic idea. And in the Jewish mindset, the way the world worked was this. There was the present age, which we're part of. And then there was the age to come, the coming age. And the, the hinge that separates these two epics, these two ages, is the coming of Messiah. And that's, that would have been the conventional worldview. Our world here, and then, uh, or our, our age, the agent of the world that we're in now, and this golden age, this wonderful age of perfection and, and peace and prosperity that will happen once the Messiah comes. That would have been a very conventional uh, picture. And Paul says, it's already here, but it's not yet fully realized. Paul says, the Messiah's coming is the already part. And the Messiah's coming is already having impact in the world today. But no, it's not fully, it's fully complete. Creation is groaning. So he's saying, we've been looking at it wrong. We thought it was just a, you know, bam, you're done. And in fact, it's this growing thing. And so we see this throughout the scriptures. There's metaphors. Uh, Jesus talks about a seed growing underground. Um, uh, we, we talk about um, a ferment in a batch of yeast. Um, that there's, there's these, oh, pictures of this idea of something that's happening without without your realizing it and it's it's coming into into fruition without us expecting it so so in Paul's picture he's saying we're somewhere near the end right Paul's Paul's very clear we're we're close to the end we're close to the end of the age it's happening soon salvation is sooner than than when we first believed but it hasn't happened fully yet. So there's this period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ that is the church age, the age in which we're at. So that's what Paul's saying. And this week as I was reading the, the materials that, that you know I study as I was preparing this message, I, I, I came back to the the question of Alaska and the Ring of Fire. And the picture that came to me, it was something, I read something in a commentary, and it said something about the, the two ages are grinding against each other, and it reminded me of this problem. The reason we have the earthquakes, geologists tell us, is because these two plates are slipping against each other, and, and they're, they're, one is going underneath the other one. The, and and so, um, so we see this in the Philippines and Sumatra, that there's this subduction zone, the part that's going under, and then the thing above, and that's where the mountains happen, right? And I was thinking to myself, I love this picture of the ages, the two ages grinding against each other. And, and the, the thing that's happening is <coughs> mountains of grace are being thrust up by this, by this grinding 
of the two the two ages. And when you think about the the Christian movement down through the centuries, if you think of the the mountains of grace that we have we have brought into this world or God has brought through us, things like the the first orphanages, the first hospitals, the first universities, the the anti-slavery movements, the civil rights movements, for 2000 years Christians have been God's instrument for bringing grace into the world. I just finished reading this book, or actually I was listening to the audio book, and it's an amazing book. It's by a guy named Tom Holland. He's a not an, uh, he's not a believer, uh, but he is a believer. He says, I don't believe in God, but um, I believe in all the things that Christians have done in the world. And so he wrote this book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And he goes from, literally from, from 50 AD all the way to, uh, to 2016. Um, and he talks about the way that Christians have been the instrument that God has used to, to bring these mountains of grace into our world. And so he says, even as a non-believer and a, and a student of the ancient world, he's a historian of, of Rome and Greece, and he says that if Rome and Greece had continued the way that they were, we would not have the world we love. And so he says, if, if you, if you like civil rights, if you like rights for women, if you like orphanages, if there's things that you like in our world, he traces one after another directly to the Christian movement. And so I just, I just, um, fell in love with his image and it's not biblical, you know, if you're wondering, you know, stick the ones Jesus gave us about, you know, the ferment and yeast and the plant growing in the ground. But I, I, I love this picture. So, you know, when, when I think about it, I say to myself, well, what what are the problems that I'm worried about? What is what is the biggest problem in your world? And what will come of it as the present age is ground under the coming age? What will happen to that problem? Is it going to have a new expression in the age to come? Or is it going to be strictly a thing of the past that we can all forget? And how might that already be underway? How might God already be at work on that problem that presents itself to you? And what role is God calling you to take in being one of those or bringing into existence one of those mountains of grace? What is God calling you? What is your role in this geologic, this seismic shift in the world as the coming age changes our world? Paul ends this opening of his letter. He says, Through Christ God has given us the privilege and authority of apostles, as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. Paul says, God has given me the role of telling you this good news. And you are included among the Gentiles who've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. He says, I'm writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So give it some thought. Maybe you are a volcano of grace or an earthquake. Because Paul says all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. Through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. And if you're walking out of here going, man, that sounds pretty complicated. Well, Paul has an answer for that too. He says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. I would not have thought of this. Paul would not have thought of this. But he says, he says, I never would have seen the coming age as 
something that began growing in our own world and began sending out ripples and shockwaves and sometimes volcanoes of grace and mercy into our world. So give that some thought and come back next week and we'll see how Paul concludes his letter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Apostle Paul and his the, the, the many gifts that you gave him so that he could understand what it was that Jesus had done and communicated to us, Lord. Um, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the things of the, of the age to come, to see the, the shoots and the, the, the rising of the dough and, and even, yes, the earthquakes of grace, uh, that are making themselves known in our world and help us to understand what you call us to do and to be in this picture. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.